Well, good day. My name is Mark Brown, and you are listening to the Valley in the Shadows podcast. Welcome. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podcast Amanda McNeil. Amanda is someone I've known for, I guess, over four years now. Amanda has an extraordinary story to tell of when she was uh, a young woman, a young girl. Uh, But before I welcome her to the podcast, I just want to share a little bit about Amanda. So Amanda, her passion is human resources. And she is in human resources because she wants to touch people's lives. She wants to affect them in a wonderful and positive way. And how do I know Amanda is good at this? Is because I am one of those people that she's touched. Uh, I am someone that she has blessed. She is very gifted. Uh, I count her now as a friend. And it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much, Mark. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Describe to me what your life was like when you were younger. So I had a pretty wonderful childhood. Um, I came from a blended family, and I, I will just say that I am a good representative of how divorce can actually do good things in people's lives. My parents ended up in much happier marriages the second time around. I ended up with more siblings. So I'd say I was raised um, in a very blessed environment. There Mm. was a whole lot of love. There was a whole lot of putting the kids first. Um, It was just a wonderful way to grow up. So you you had this blended environment. What what was it? I mean, what what were you like as a um, a young girl? Were you was it a happy time? Was it was it a struggle? I mean, we all, all teenagers, and I say all, there's probably someone going to say, right. not all, but <laughs> well, All many. teenagers have some level of struggle. I think what's interesting, I suffered from what most oldest children suffer from, and it was a touch of perfectionism. Um, I was an overachiever. I was a classical musician. Um, you know, I was the president of the National Honor Society and the band and involved in the junior historians and... Um, I went through a lot of volunteer work. Um, I was accepted into the colleges I wanted to go to very early Mm. and um, actually even granted scholarship to the one I chose to go to Mm. uh, to perform with my instrument, which was great. But um, I think, again, a lot of... I was the oldest of six kids, so... (laughs) um, I suffered very much from, like, oldest child syndrome, which was I I didn't want to be in anybody's way... Mm. I always wanted to be helpful, mm. um, and I probably overloaded myself quite easily, which um, unfortunately are traits that I still carry into adulthood. Mm. So you were the oldest child. Uh, you were an overachiever, your words. Uh, you were involved in a multiplicity of activities, uh, yes. volunteer, uh Church, no doubt, your music, mm-hmm. sport, no doubt, in some measure. I know you, you love to run. Um, so how, what impact did that pressure have on you emotionally? How did it affect you as a, as a teenager into your, uh, you know, into college and so on? I think that um, 
a lot of oldest children would relate that um, as you go into college and you know that you've got, you know, a barrel of younger siblings that are going to be following you, you you feel a lot of, my parents never put pressure on me to be very clear. They were phenomenal. They always kind of teased me that um, they, uh, if, if I made a B, I'd get really upset. My dad would always say, wow, I never made a B because he was an all-C student. So, <laughs> um, But, you know, I think you put a lot of pressure on yourself to provide a good example to your younger siblings and to make it easier on your parents while they're still raising your younger siblings. And the spread between us, I, I have a sister who's 13 years younger than me, so my mom mm. was still changing diapers mm. um, when I was in high school. And, um, you know, that it... it creates some anxiety to a level um most of it's self-induced anxiety but um as you get older and you start to feel more stress and strain um perfectionists tend to not have the best coping mechanisms so that kind of led to some challenges for me as I um as I got a little older and also it it's it's not well known uh that perfectionists can experience uh, depression Yes. Uh, can experience uh, uh, they, they, the perfectionist, uh, particularly the younger adult, uh, older teenager. There's also a sense of hiding it as well, because the whole point of perfection is that you appear per- perfect, yes. uh, and then that that very quickly and unfortunately promotes a hidden life. Was that your experience? Are you someone who uh, kind of hid? Uh, your your anxiety and and your depression, or was it something that no no I'm pretty open about this. Absolutely, I think that especially when you have significantly younger siblings. I mean, my brothers and sisters were like four and ten and eleven when I was about to graduate from high school, and yeah. you just want them to experience the happiness you had. So, um, a lot of my life. I felt like was dedicated towards making sure that they just were as happy as they could be because I loved them so much. And mm. I, I found myself, I think my senior year especially, just, um, you know, the melancholy started creeping in. Mm. Um, my mom actually noticed because she said um, what was interesting is I would just go quiet. I'm, I can come across as shy sometimes to people, mm. um, especially in larger groups, but ten, at, at home and with people I'm comfortable with, I, I could talk to a brick wall until the brick wall told me to stop. Um, and so for my mom, that was a big signal to her that there was something something going on. I was getting quieter at home, even with my little sister, who was four at the time, and I just spent all of my extra time with um, she noticed that I was just more tired, which I'd never been, I've never been a good sleeper. So for her to see me go to bed early and, and things like that was always a little bit of a surprise. And um, just in general, general, I think she kind of caught on to my disengagement. I, of course, brushed it off and told her I was fine. I didn't want her to worry about me. I was, um, and I think what I did is threw myself into more activities and more achievements just to show her that I was okay. Yeah. Um, which is, again, super common, I think, for yes, kids like Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the features that you've, you've just unpacked uh, is when you're a pleaser, you live for other people yes. and your needs, your health, mental, physical, uh, is way down the, the, the list of priorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that catches up with you. Is that what happened to you? You've described how in upper high school you were starting to notice quote-unquote melancholy 
did that develop and grow into something more serious as you went into to college? Uh, obviously, you've described how you threw a lot of activity at it, which did it work? Um, by the time I went to college, I was taking 21 hours maintaining a 4.0 GPA. Gosh. I was 17 years old when I started college, and I already qualified as a sophomore. And by the end of my freshman year, I was on target to graduate two and a half years early if I didn't slow things down. So um, I definitely just kept myself busy to avoid feeling depressed. But by the end of my freshman year, my mom pulled me aside and said, I know you're telling me you're okay, but I really feel like you're not. And she actually took me to a doctor and um, uh, supported me getting put on antidepressants for the first time. And And how was that experience for you, uh, the doctor telling you that you needed those? And then how how did you handle that psychologically? I, you know, I think I just went ahead and took them to placate my mom, but I kept telling her I couldn't be depressed. Look at how much success I had in my life, and I had friends, and I could smile, and my mom kept telling me that's that doesn't always mean you're not depressed. I really just, you're not yourself, mm-hmm. and I think that's very hard to hear from someone you love, especially when you're trying so hard to show them that you're okay, but I don't think I really understood that depression is, it, it can be psychological in a lot of ways but it's it's really a medical condition yes. in so many ways and that's something I think as a, as a young person who at the time in the early 2000s you know this really still wasn't talked about a lot mm. um, I didn't quite um, quite understand how far I'd probably slipped from where I should be because it creeps up on you very slowly yes so you're right, there is a spectrum. There is a range from, from feeling just a little bit off all the way through to very serious clinical depression. Um, and, and there's spectrum, you know, there's a whole range of different symptoms that happen for folks. You've hinted at them, some of them are motivational. Uh, you didn't, didn't sound like you had that, but you definitely had the lethargy, the extra sleep. Um, you talked about isolating yourself from your four-year-old. That's one of the symptoms, right, mm-hmm. that you experienced. Um, so there is a slew of symptoms, and one of the things that happens when you're quite depressed is that you hold everything inside. The anger, the sadness, the disappointment. Let me ask you this. Did you have, and it sounds like you had a wonderful relationship with your mom, um, did you feel like you could sh- unburden with her, share your inner turmoil or or was there someone else or no one that you were sharing that with? I think what's interesting about it was that I was so sad Mm. (laughs) but I didn't know what I was sad about so I didn't feel like there was anything to share Hmm. and I think that this is something that probably is quite common in young people who haven't been educated on depression Mm. um I felt like there was nothing going wrong in my life, so I had nothing to talk about. And even today, when I talk to my therapist, she's like, Amanda, there's always something we can work through and work to find better. And unfortunately, though, for me, because I didn't really know that I should be talking about my feelings, um, I wasn't necessarily honest with the doctor about how effective the antidepressants were or weren't. So when I went back and started my second year of college, I was really in a pretty terrible spot um 
I just kept adding again more activities and faking my happiness more so that people wouldn't fuss over me about it because the medication didn't work and and as an adult now I can look back and say well that's because everybody's body chemistry is different and not every medication will work for everyone and I should have gone back to the doctor and told him that but that level of honesty just felt like a luxury that I didn't have or it would have been a bother to take advantage of and um, it just kind of queued up my sophomore year of college to be um, somewhat tragic. So just before we, and I would, if you're open to it, I'd love you to share what you mean by that statement about somewhat tragic. Why do you think you, the response to your depression, feeling sad as you put it, why do you think your response to that was to become even more busy? Like, what, what do you think was underneath that? Um, you know, as an adult, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. And learning more about it, I think it's, it's very common. Uh, the busier you are, the, the more you can do. I, I think I've always heard that if you want somebody to get something done, give it to a busy person. I've always found that the busier I am, the more I'm capable of. Mm. But also, my involvement in other activities, it kept me from slowing down and feeling what I was feeling. Mm. So I think for me... Um, activity, hustle bustle, volunteering, um, doing more work is always a little bit of a symptom um, for me. So we're careful to watch that as a family. My um, amazing spouse who I'm married to today, he's always like, you're overworking what's going on that's causing you to do this to yourself. fantastic is (laughs) Um, that? He knows you. So he knows me pretty well. But I think for a lot of perfectionists, you... um, you don't want to feel your inadequacies and you don't want to think through what's causing you pain because you don't understand it. And as a perfectionist, you want to understand and, and, and feel clear about everything. And so I think piling on the activities was just a way to um, avoid slowing down enough to feel things. That's, you know, and I'm glad that you, you, you've answered it that way. And honesty, honestly, um, because I, I know there's going to be people listening who are going to connect with that part particularly. Mm-hmm. But I want to give you a chance to talk about the somewhat tragic sophomore year. Tell me about that. Well, I um, entered my sophomore year of school, and I think I did what a lot of girls do. And, you know, I kind of fell in love with a boy, and I think that was a distraction <laughs> for me. It kept me busy. <laughs> Um, I was still succeeding in school. I was still maintaining a very high GPA average. Mm. Um, I did decide at the time to switch my music major because I could feel that something was wrong, and mm. I thought that that's what it was. I kept trying to change and fix other things in my life to yep. see if it would help me feel better. And honestly, going through that breakup with that boy, um, I think I finally got to a point where I realized... I'm unhappy and it's not only caused by these things and there's a lot more going on. Um, But honestly, the inability to manage the stress of that breakup is kind of what opened up um, some really bad habits for me. Um, I started uh, cutting myself before we broke up because I got to a point where I felt like um, 
there were too many feelings and I didn't want to feel them. So uh, cutting for me became a way to uh, kind of embody a physical pain and then have that physical pain end. So I felt like I could kind of move forward. It also became a way of kind of self-punishment. I felt like I should be happier. (laughs) Yeah. And I felt guilty for not being able to find my own happiness. And so it's, it's interesting to me that those bad habits developed. I've never in my entire life actually met another cutter until I was an adult. Um, so it's not something that, you know, I'd learned from someone else or heard about from someone else. Um, and the more I read up on trauma and depression, this is something that's been going on with patients who have a history like mine who are perfectionists um, for hundreds of years. I can remember some of the first times that I, I guess, was developing a method. Yeah. Which, um, you know, it kind of just feels so terrible to say, but it, it's so interesting is you're harming yourself, but I remember taking all these precautions to do it in a way that nobody else would find out and I wouldn't get an infection. So I remember, um, you know, using rubbing alcohol and using bandages and using the asporin to help myself heal, which seems just so counterintuitive towards the act itself. Um, but of course, when you're depressed, you're not always making decisions that make sense. And and, so. and the, the key thing here, and, and I want to check this with you. So this isn't a statement, but a, a question. From what you've said and what I understand of self harm, um, self harming, is it's about the release, the attempt to move on from a particular issue or pain. And then you also added the sense of punishing yourself. It's not actually I want to end my life. So the the idea of neosporin and and of wanting to heal, that that makes sense if you understand that self-harm is is about the feeling now, not not something longer term. Is is that a fair representation? Yeah, I think you could say it's like um, releasing a little bit of air out of a balloon for a lot Mm. of Um, self-harmers. It's a way of avoiding certain feelings by putting yourself in in the present with something that's more tangible and understandable. So for those who are listening who have never um, self-harmed and just, you know, imagine themselves, you know, I stub my toe and I'm screaming, crying, and uh, I can't imagine, you know, doing something like that if you're comfortable and I know this is getting into some pretty heavy territory what what happens for you or what happened for you in that moment were you in a disassociative state were you kind of like disconnected when you would self-harm or were you you know again uh, this is getting a little bit graphic so go just go as far as you want I think that um for anyone who has a family member who is self-harm and you struggle to understand. Mm. I think for me, it would be when I would get to the point where the swirl and the panic and everything inside of me would be vibrating and filling up and I just felt like I couldn't handle it anymore. For me, self-harming was a way of bringing myself back and able to kind of, again, release some of that pressure. Um, It would immediately provide me clarity and bring me back into the now so that I could handle whatever I was dealing with. It was 
again, it's a coping mechanism, but it's a terrible one. In in fact, what's so interesting is when I did receive treatment um, several months later, I was put in a very intense inpatient treatment, and I my treatment partners were substance abuse um, and alcohol experienced substance abuse and alcoholism, and I think that I was medicating very much in a way that they would medicate when they mm-hmm. would get to be too much. They would turn to the bottle or turn to the needle and. I was turning to the razor blade. Wow. So, so uh, you, how long did you self-harm for? And where did you self-harm? And was it, I mean, you talked about the plan of making sure no one knew about it. Was it in hidden places on your body? Yes, I, um, I actually took very great care to hide what I was doing from other people. So I was careful to try to keep it shallow cut so it wasn't something... I couldn't explain away later. Mm-hmm. Um, I had razor blades hidden all throughout the bathroom, and I was living in it. When I started self-harming, I was actually living in a house with, I want to say, two or three other mm-hmm. um, people I went to school with. Mm-hmm. Um, when I continued to self-harm after my parents brought me home because they realized I was struggling, um, I would tape them up underneath cabinets and um, you know, put packets together, hide them underneath a shampoo bottle, places I didn't think my parents could find them. Um, oftentimes what I would do is I'd feel too much and I'd excuse myself to use the restroom and then I would cut and um, immediately bandage it, put on a long sleeve shirt or a sweater and, and go back right out to the same room and pick up a conversation where I'd left it off. Wow. Um, which wow. I think is, is something that it I feel so so much empathy for families who have a cutter in their midst. Um, I, I think it's similar to bulimia. It's it's um, it's easy to hide. So so how long did you cut for? Uh, so yeah. Um, before I received treatment, I was cutting for often on. Um, I want to say six to nine months. Yeah. Um, the cutting became very intense and escalated. I want to say probably the month before I went to the hospital. I, I used to be able to do a little, and then I wouldn't do it for a long time. Um, but I got to the point before the hospital where it was um, a large number of cuts per episode, which um, uh, it caused me to be hospitalized. And then after my intense inpatient therapy, I continued to cut off and on for a few years while I did outpatient treatment and eventually after I want to say three and a half years of cutting I did stop altogether. What would you say to the listener right now who is in the midst of again everybody is different but is Mm -hmm. self-harming right now what what words of encouragement or advice would you offer them? I would say that if you are self-harming and you have these impulses to self-harm, they have medications today that can quiet those impulses. And they may not all go away, but they can support you in weaning you off of that need and that fear of what will I do if I don't cut, um, that can support you while you work through it with your therapist and and your doctors. Um, there are some powerful medications out today that weren't even out 20 years ago, um, which is close to the time that I first dealt with this. And 
if you're self-harming, your medication is not working. You, you need to be speaking up. And then I would also say, too, that um, there's this wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score about trauma and surviving trauma. And he holds that one of the tenets of recovering from trauma, so if you are self-harming now, that is, that is a trauma, is not only dealing and engaging in medical therapies like medication and talk therapy, but also engaging and doing something that makes you feel physically worthy and physically strong. Um, so for me, I think that's, you mentioned earlier that I'm a runner. For me, um, knowing that I'm strong enough to get through things without cutting and knowing that I can choose coping mechanisms that don't involve hurting myself, although, you know, sometimes running does that when you run a marathon. Um, <laughs> Some would argue it is a form of right. self-harm. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but there, are, there are healthier ways to do it that can provide you the same yes. type of, of release without being a punishment. And there are ways for you to celebrate your body without harming your body that can, that can really just you should be looking into versus hurting yourself. That's excellent. So that book that you mentioned, I'm going to put that in the show notes, and it's a very famous yes. book, a New York Times bestseller by Bessel van der Klok, Kolk. Sorry, Bessel yes. van der Kolk. I wasn't even going to try to say that. It's been <laughs> phenomenal. I know the book, and in fact, we have a copy here uh, in our house. So that's excellent advice. So face it, uh, understand there are medications that can help with the impulse, um, and then find positive channels, uh, positive ways of managing it. And let me say, and I want to be clear here, Amanda uh, has 20 years of journeying with this. Uh, you noticed earlier that Amanda said, for those listening, that she, is, she says when she talks with her therapist in present tense. Um, nice. So I think that's important, Amanda, to say that we're not offering, you know, here's a quick solution and three, three weeks, four months from now, you're going to be honky-dory. This has been a struggle and a challenge for you for a while. It's about degrees of seriousness, degrees of debilitation. What advice would you offer? You're now a parent. Um, You've you've been someone who's been through it, who I'm sure you've had many conversations with your mum about this. What advice would you give to the parent, sibling, best friend who are listening now who have someone in their life who is self-harming? I mean, first and foremost, I would just say I. my greatest fear in life is that one of my children will turn out to be a self-harmer like I was because I just, I, I never want my children to feel that level of self-loathing. Loathing. I, want, I want them to love themselves. And yeah. I want you to know that if you're a parent who's experiencing this, it's not because you haven't loved your child enough in most cases. And it's not because you didn't do the right things. And it's not because you didn't try. My parents were phenomenal. And I can't emphasize enough that I had a great childhood, but I also had a medical condition and I did not develop the coping skills to support me through healing from that medical condition. So the first thing I'd have to tell them is that it's probably not your fault, but you're going to feel that way. And then the next thing I would remind them is that the more you push, the more someone will hide this. So approaching this in not a nonchalant way, because it is a very serious thing, but approaching this and having a plan with your person 
Um, you know, my spouse and I had always talked through this because on our second date, I brought up the fact that he could see the scars on my arm and I thought we should go ahead and talk about it. <laughs> and so for 16 years, this man has been sitting next to me and he's been like, well, this is our plan if it gets too bad is have a plan with this person. If they start to feel that impulse and they need you to be present with them, don't judge. Yes. Um, this is a very easy thing, I think, to judge. It's a very easy thing for parents to get angry because I will even say my, I remember my stepdad who, who loves me so deeply and so much. I remember how angry he was with me for doing this to myself. And mm. that is something I think that in a lot of ways he told me later down the road is he's like, really, I was angry with myself because I couldn't help you. And it mm. was just too hard to go through. You're going to feel a lot of emotions. Mm. Um, the more you can keep your emotion out of supporting your person as they're going through it, the better. Um, they're, they're not in their right mind. When, when you're self-harming, it's, it's not normal. Um, and, and I think people need to be aware of that. It's not your fault. Try to stay even keel. Work with them to develop a, a plan to cope in a different way. I know that my spouse has always said, he's like, I'll just sit there with you because you can't do it in front of me. <laughs> um, and, and, and then reminding them what you have to lose. Um, most therapists, if they find out someone is self-harming and they're going through episodes where there's more than one cut per episode, they will hospitalize you. And um, it's, it's a pretty quick, low-tolerance effect for people committing self-harm so think about all the things that go into that and I know that you know for me as I've you know I I, most people who experience depression at a young age will experience it again at some point in their lives you know you you have to be aware of those things those things are disruptive and you may not want to lose that time that you would have outside of a hospital so those find something that motivates you not to cut and find something that motivates your your family member not to cut so one of the things that I like to explore in this podcast uh, thematically is, you know, what are the skills, the uh, techniques, the attitude that has brought you healing, continues to bring you healing? Um, let, you've, you've shared, obviously, seeking medical help, uh, psychopharmacological intervention, uh, talking therapies, um, reading books, um, being open and honest about it here you are on this podcast i mean that that is super important right to when you give voice to it um it it creates some uh, um reason some purpose nice. to to your pain that you this will help other people there is no question uh this this what you're sharing right now and what you have shared and will share uh what other is there anything else that you kind of would like to give as a gift to to those listening of what's helped you from that uh, young woman 20 years ago to where you are right now in terms of your healing, in terms of your journey? Um, so obviously there's no substitute for medication. Uh, talk therapy, or I actually had to do EMDR. Yep. Um, talk therapy, traditional talk therapy didn't work very effectively for me, so I, I had to go through some others. But um Honestly, my relationship with God has played a huge part in my healing. Mm. Um, learning to trust God, learning to lean on Jesus. I, I think you always, there's always that imagery of the footsteps um, and knowing that Jesus is carrying me. I know there were times where I felt so alone, but I don't think I ever doubted um, that he was there. 
I think um, that for me has been huge and, and I've continuously you know relied on my faith to support me through this and I've always try to remember that God has a bigger plan for me and um, there are moments in my life where I glimpse what I've accomplished and the people I've touched and the people I've supported and I keep thinking to myself if I hadn't healed myself and gotten to a better place I never would have been able to create all these positives out of my life so I, I think knowing that there's a bigger purpose for me has been it's been very critical in my healing journey yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that because that is, again, a theme that I like to draw out in, in, a, in my podcast is God, God created us. God loves who, who we are. The issue is often us not connecting with that. So not connecting with that love, not connecting with the fact that God created something magnificent. Um, you know, the, the reaction to that uh, theological statement is sometimes um, disbelief or there can be humor and you can hear someone saying well God clearly messed up or he was uh, he wasn't <laughs> concentrating when I was created whatever it is is humorous but there's also a, it's also just an e- ignoring it but the truth is it, we are created in the image of God what what is called the Imago Dei we are created in the image of God. And when you connect with that, it, there's something incredibly powerful. that We are created by the Creator. Um, and, and, and making sense of that in our lives, that's a lifelong journey, right? But that's some of what you're talking about, and I'm really glad you, you brought that up. Well, and it is. And I think that's a very common question that you hear from anyone who goes through significant pain or anyone who creates self-harm is if if God created me in his image why does he let this happen and quite frankly self-harm is not something that happens it's something that you're doing to yourself mm. and there, there's a level of personal responsibility for that that I think I take but I also remember that there's something my priest said to me after my second miscarriage Mm. And God didn't let me lose my children, but God did take them into his arms and take them home when I lost them. Yeah. And I think that there's something to that when you're looking at self-harm and depression, that God's not making this happen to you, but God is sitting right next to you throughout it. Yeah. You have to be willing to be quiet and still enough yeah. to feel the emotions that he has gifted you with as a human being Mm. and he's connected you with through Jesus Christ and let yourself feel that he's sitting next to you let yourself feel that he's carrying you through and that that for me is something that still you know that that's a conscious that it's like forgiveness you have to consciously make those connections and allow yourself to make those connections it's not something you can take for granted yeah, you're actually, the, the name of this podcast is The Valley in the Shadows, and of course it refers to the Bible verse, though I walk through the valley in the shadows of death, I will fear no evil. Why do I fear no evil? Because you are with me. You walk beside me, before me, um, in re- referring, of course, to the Lord. And what you just said there, of what your priest shared with you, um, you know, it, it is when I lost my son, and a big part of why I'm doing this podcast is that's where I arrived. 
you know, why, why did that happen? Why did I lose my son? Why did my son die? Um, the, what I arrived at is exactly what your priest said to you is, well, God was there by the poolside with you. And that's a very powerful image. Uh, it, it's, it's not that God left or God was incapable. Uh, horrific things happen. But that doesn't mean that God is not present in your pain and, and comforting you in your healing. Uh, and I think that's a very powerful uh, uh, image that your priest gave you. What a fantastic way to finish. And, and for those uh, who are listening, uh, if you want to have more information, do check the show notes. Uh, there's going to be some books and, and some links. So, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has just been absolutely eye-opening and a wonderful, wonderful uh, blessing for me and I and I'm sure for those that are listening so thank you for coming on the show thank you right, God bless you